Universities are actually just groups of people sharing ideas. And you could draw a completely different map of the universities of Britain based on shared ideas and interests, Mm -hmm. which would bear no relation to the geographical location or to the existing structures. So these institutes that get formed are actually just collections of people. Someone very wise said to me once that you've got to think of universities like their own planets. And within those planets, there are countries, there are counties, there are regions. And each institution will be different. For me, the most important thing is about, unsurprisingly, uh, the people. Hello and welcome to The Output. This series is about digital culture, what it means and who it's for. At the heart of the University of Leicester is the David Wilson Library. And as of last year, the first space you'll see when you walk into the library past the coffee shop is the Digital Culture Studio. It's a prominent and buzzing new space. There's usually some kind of installation being put up or some talk being given, loads of audiovisual displays in all the windows. This is the home of the Institute for Digital Culture. It's all windows. It feels accessible and welcoming. Anyone who visits the library knows it's there. In this four-part audio series, we will profile and interrogate the central ideas behind this new Institute for Digital Culture in its inaugural year. I'm Dr Sophie Frost. I'm a research fellow here at the University of Leicester, having spent the last several years exploring the impact of digital technology on cultural work. And I'm Chris Thorpe Tracy. I'm not an academic, but I work as a writer and a creative producer with two decades in the arts and culture sector. Chris and I have worked on a number of research podcasts together. Voices of the Royal Pavilion and Museums, People Change Museums and The Hidden Constellation. Check them out. They're really good. So, Sophie, before we get into it, for this series, what are the questions we're exploring and trying to get answers for? Well, as I see it, we've got two urgent issues here. The first one is, what is an institute within a university in 2023? And then, what do we mean by digital culture in 2023? In order to answer questions like these, I tend to draw on ideas from cultural anthropology, like Clifford Geertz's ideas of deep hanging out, which he came up with in the late 90s to describe a method of immersing oneself in a cultural group or social experience in an informal way. But, and this is important here, I'm not an outsider to research at the University of Leicester. So really, when we're asking these questions, we're insiders looking out, not outsiders looking in. Well, I'm a sort of outsider looking in. Um, Can you explain the Institute for Digital Culture? What is it? What's it doing in the heart of the University of Leicester? So that's what we're going to explore. In a nutshell, the Institute for Digital Culture fuses technology and culture to generate ideas in a number of subject areas, from digital humanities and digital heritage, media studies, to creative computing and data science. In its first year, the Institute has established four central themes. Digital skills and leadership, inclusive digital design, creative and cultural technologies, and cultural informatics, so that's big data, modelling and simulation. For our purposes, for this series, we've understood these four themes as people, design, tech and data. So, here we go. Episode 1, People. 
In this episode, we're going to ponder what it means to hold so many different perspectives of what digital culture is and who and what it's all for, all gathered beneath the umbrella of this one institute. Before anyone else, let's meet the librarian. I'm Steve Williams and I am the University Librarian and Director of Library and Learning Services, which covers a a range of activities from traditional libraries to working in partnership with the Institute for Digital Culture. Libraries are, we're lucky in some ways, we get to work with so many students, with researchers, with academics, with external partners, with the community. So we sit at the the heart of the campus, we invite people in, we go out, and it's just a a really nice place to, to be, really. So digital tools start to change the way that we do things. And we've seen that massively accelerate uh, right up to the present day now with the the introduction of of artificial intelligence and large language models, how that is going to change how we query data and how we can read and understand data. So whether we're talking about text or handwriting, whether we're talking about images, whether we're talking about 3D models of Egyptian artefacts, Um, whatever that content is that we're looking at, digital is all part of it and libraries exist to make information available to our users. So all of the forms of this information that we can make it available in count and the more we can make material discoverable and accessible then we're in a good place and we support that research endeavour, we support family history, we support all of the kinds of activities that people out there want to to take place. So basically it makes total sense to have this institute embedded within the library. Yes, and and it's it's helped us clarify some thinking as well Mm. and understand um, things in ways that we we maybe hadn't thought so carefully about before. So it's given us an opportunity to explore it's an opportunity for us to sit back as as the library and say okay what hadn't we thought about it's always nice when somebody points out something to you that you go that's really obvious but it's really important Mm. and we never thought about Mm. it the institute has been here for a relatively short time so Mm. far i was delighted that all of this came together and we were able to to host the institute here um i think for us now the challenge is to make the most of that so Mm. I've learned quite a lot from working with Ross and others at the Institute our role now is to amplify that and go okay these are the the good things that the Institute is bringing how do we make that normal how do we get that to reach out into the wider communities Mm. how do we maybe bring in some of those communities who have differences that we're not aware of that normally stop them coming into our building Mm. or stop them accessing information in a way that we take for granted. So yeah, I think it's a journey that we're on and I think it's the Mm -hmm. the start of that and there's plenty Mm. of space and uh, for us to explore in the future. It's a legal requirement for authorities to provide public libraries. Um, Universities couldn't really have survived without the libraries. And then the needs of bringing the digital in just came naturally Mm. because institutions needed to provide that sort of digital know-how. Libraries were an obvious place to do some of this work and quite often you find that early adopters hang around in places like this.
I'm Clarissa Wilson. I'm a postgraduate research student. Uh, I'm getting my PhD here, just started in September. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I'm one of the future 100 scholars for the university. Could you say just what that means, the centenary Absolutely. scholarships? Yeah, so the centenary scholarships or the future 100 scholarships, uh, those came out sort of at the 100 year mark. <laughs> and Honestly, I really respect the university for this, you know, as kind of a celebration that we've been here 100 years, that we are a public university with a very sort of democratized history. It was crowdfunded, which seems very ahead of the curve now. Uh, they, instead of doing something big and flashy with architecture, they gave out 100 scholarships. I started out with digital storytelling, uh, looking at sort of very broadly how does digital storytelling enable people to diversify their stories, to be heard, to be included in the heritage sector? Uh, I looked a lot at sort of what, both what technology we were talking about and what sort of stories that might mean. And while it's early days still, uh, right now it looks like I'm going to be looking at uh, fictive identities and the creation of them in the heritage sector. You know, when we are trying to empathize, when we're trying to look through someone else's perspective, what does that do for the way that we accept information? You know, the more we kind of sink into that other self, either through prompted questions in the museum, through a living history angle, something like that, how does that change how we look at the present, the past, other viewpoints. And the more I kind of looked at that, the more I realized there were a lot of other fields that have really valuable insights for us mm -hmm. in the heritage sector that we should be kind of drawing together and making not really a best practices guide, but just a vocabulary to begin to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, being here, especially being here right now, right at the start, I'm really enjoying sort of, it's more of a lab environment. Mm -hmm. It's something where people are sort of coming across each other organically while they're working on their things. There's sort of a knowledge exchange there that maybe doesn't happen if everyone's in their own office. That sort of interaction is really wonderful. And if I had been making a wish list at the beginning of the semester when I started, that probably would have been on my list. This may end up being a total word salad because I'm not sure how I love word salads. All good. <laughs> so I see digital culture as being kind of one part of the digital humanities spectrum, mm -hmm. let's say. This is a new frontier in a very real way. This is an aspect of culture that just did not exist 30 years ago. I know that one of the first mentions of the internet on television at all is actually kind of cutely uh, in a 1995 Friends episode where Chandler meets a woman over the internet <laughs> and begins dating her. It ends up being someone he knows in real life, so it's kind of a strange situation there, but mostly what you need to know is that in one of the scenes he is on his very bulky 90s computer <laughs> And one of, I think it's Phoebe who asks what he's doing, and he says that he's on the Guggenheim Museum page while chatting with this woman. And it's kind of their 
version of a day at the art museum. And A, I think it's fascinating that, you know, this sector and kind of this exact topic are one of the first mentions of the internet in television. And B, I think it really shows how far we've come. You know, that was, there was such potential even just in that sample interaction of we can connect with people, we can see things we otherwise wouldn't have seen, we can make new ways of interacting. Mm -hmm. If I have to pinpoint sort of a genesis of digital culture, it's probably moments like that. Uh, moments where people were beginning to realize, you know, this isn't just a tool, this is a space, this is a forum. But okay, it's a forum in that it's a web forum, and it's a forum kind of in that bigger, more classical sense of this is where new ideas can be made and debated and constructed and enacted. Mm. So what we heard from Steve is that there's a natural synergy between digital innovation and libraries. From the library's viewpoint, it's a natural and organic thing that the Institute for Digital Culture should be here. I do also love Clarissa's quote and how her anecdote about friends, it kind of pinpoints that moment where culture just is beginning to digitalise. As she says also about its growing impact, it's not just a tool, it's a space, it's a forum. That is a great quote. Mm, Yes. Um, One of the partners of the Institute is the Attenborough Arts Centre. This is a public-facing arts centre, like you might go and see a show there or an art exhibition. It also has a focus on neurodiversity and disability. It's a centre for excellence in disability arts, and it's also part of the university and gets involved with research projects. So then, Sophie, you went over to the Attenborough Arts Centre to chat with Andrew Fletcher, the centre's director. My name's Andrew Fletcher. I'm the director here of Attenborough Arts Centre, which is the public-facing cultural venue at uh, the University of Leicester. And we uh, run visual arts programmes, exhibitions, uh, performance programmes, learning programmes, and then uh, university programmes working with university research, teaching and student experience. So we're public-facing, but we're very much of the university and want to integrate ever more closely with the university because I think um, the potential of arts and cultural organisations within universities is so rich with uh, with potential. We are a partner with the Institute for Digital Culture. The Institute, as we understand it, supports the culture sector in its digital work and ambitions. So as Attenborough Arts Centre is one organisation within the culture sector, we look to the Institute for that support and guidance to be challenged uh, to, to see how we can connect to that bigger sector-wide uh, conversation about what digital is. But then we hope that uh, we have something to offer the Institute and they can look to us as the being on the, the, the campus right next door. You know, um, We hope that they'll look to us to engage in practice and to work with artists and um, if we think of ourselves as, as artist-led, you know, mm. what, what could that mean for how the Institute happens on the ground here in Leicester Mm. and obviously the scope of the Institute is um, national and international but I think we've got a role to to play right here uh, in the city. Um, We would hope to identify what our best practice is uh, but also Mm. how we want to develop further and I think the exciting thing is that we have a track record in many different aspects of 
arts practice, I guess, contemporary arts practice, mm-hmm. uh, but there's many other things that we'd like to develop. Mm. Uh, we have worked quite a lot in digital before, particularly during the pandemic, where we pivoted a lot of our programmes online um, and really thought about, uh, particularly through our learning programmes, how we could bring our existing participants with us through the pandemic and we engaged with them on a weekly basis and worked out how to uh, modify our uh, workshops to make them work online. Mm. So it was transformational uh, for us in many ways. And now sort of post-pandemic, thinking about what's the legacy of of that um, and how do we think about digital in this sort of new world. What are your hopes for digital culture? or cultures if you like <laughs> yeah great question I mean I think um, we want to focus on being a hub for contemporary arts and working with living artists um, and really embracing the contemporary and uh, the future and um, I think digital can really help us in that way because it is future facing, it's the unknown, it's the zeitgeist. It's mm. great to embrace the excitement around that. Um, and also being part of the university, you know, seeing ourselves as a centre for research and innovation. So we support so many artists to create new work, uh, which is articulating ideas in new ways. And I think digital can really help us do that in form. So again, there's a, an excitement around. Um, the possibilities of digital. Attenborough Arts Centre has also been a centre for accessibility and inclusion mm. right from the beginning and I think digital offers this potential for thinking about what does accessibility and inclusion look like now, mm-hmm. whether that's for people who um, can't come to the centre for whatever reason, if you know they can't leave their home or they can't travel you know you've got a far greater geographical reach uh, but also maybe um, people who don't come to cultural organizations or what are seen as establishment cultural organizations if people are intimidated about engaging or just don't know that we exist you know how can a digital offer potentially reach people in in new ways without Mm -hmm. them having to come to the to the venue mm. it's sort of interesting thinking again about it's an institute for digital culture but um, to what extent do you need a physical location as well mm. so I think physical location is is good and uh, but it can exist in multiple places it can exist at Attenborough Arts Centre it can exist in different locations on campus and across the country and internationally as well so um, I think it's there's a real value in it being able to scale in, in all sorts of different ways. I think there's a real great potential for it to get stuff done, and I know a lot of people have talked about that being a, a central priority to, to really make that real-world impact, yeah. to identify what are the issues that everyone's grappling with, debating, um, needs evidence for, needs help and, and guidance to explode the question, or the institute can really provide that research expertise and guidance and that challenge and that will be really valuable Mm. together with all the partners with the institute we can together influence policy and policy making and think about how to make that sector change if you're asking those key questions that need answering 
the institute can really bring the, hopefully the right people to the table but also be thinking about who's not around the table who needs to be brought into the conversation but I think that's the role that an institute can play. So we've heard from three stakeholders. Now let's hear from Professor Ross Parry, who instigated the forming of the Institute for Digital Culture and is its director. I spoke to Ross about what digital culture means, as well as hearing his story of the Institute's development over the past three or four years. So I'm Professor Ross Parry and I'm the director of the Institute for Digital Culture. That's half of my job. And the other half of my job is I'm Professor of Museum Technology in the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester. Thinking about what digital culture is gets to the heart of us making a very clear pitch to what we're for and why we should exist. So, you know, we need a good answer when people say, you know, what, what on earth does that mean? We spent a lot of time, we, we actually did some market analysis, you know, as we were putting our, our, our vision together and our business case together. And we looked at lots of institutes. We looked at about um, 50, 60 institutes wow. around the UK and around the world. And we, you know, what are they called? How do they use this vocabulary? Where, how big are they? What's their scope? Where are they positioned within, you know, within their university and so on? So we really try to understand what others are doing and how might an institute in this area at Leicester be, be different or actually be consistent. You know? What we saw is that that word digital gets used in many different ways. In some institutes around the world, it is actually talking about a very particular piece of technology. You know, it's an institute of we have a VR theatre or we're particularly good at um, you know, scanning or we're particularly good at a particular you know, a data analysis approach. And so the institute is, is a brilliant platform to leverage and harness the, the, the possibilities with that technology. So sometimes it's very specific. In some institutes, that word digital is used really widely. You know, it can mean computing, but it can also mean a society that has an inflection of digitality within it, and, and it's the non-computing things as well. Equally, that word culture, we noticed, got used really diversely. Sometimes that word culture could mean the culture sector and something very, very specific. Sometimes that word culture could mean the cultural creative life, you know, the arts within a particular society. But then what we also saw is that for some of those institutes, the word culture was almost a, a synonym for society, for life, you know, just, you know, just being, being alive and in the world. So we had this really big kind of matrix, literally, you know, an X, Y, Z matrix. And we were thinking, well, well, where are we? What's our definition of digital going to be? And what's our definition of culture going to be? And we settled on something that goes a bit like this. In terms of culture, we don't want to be an institute of everything. Um, we want to be an institute that's actually focusing on something very clear. And for us, that means the culture sector. So we are actually an institute of you know, undertaking purposeful collaborative work with the culture sector. And interestingly, there aren't many institutes around the world that do this. There's a lot of institutes that you know, will do speculative work or more generalised work or, or, or work that's inspired by the trajectory of a particular academic and it may or may not have use or may or may not have impact for cultural organisations. We're the opposite of that. We start by sitting down with the culture sector and listening. So we don't always tell, we listen. We don't always lead. We want to see what their points of need are. 
and actually listening to what the needs are from the sector. How does it adapt to a digital world? What does it need to adopt digital technology? What does this whole you know, connected, dateful age mean for cultural organisations, whether it's a theatre or a library or an archive or a local arts centre? How is this, this new condition, this digital condition, affecting the relevance, role, visibility of those sorts of organisations? We want to help do that. We have four ways that we think about defining digital culture. We talk about the culture through digital, whether it's listening to music or you know, being part of you know, film culture or expressing yourself in other creative ways that we experience our cultural lives, we're part of a cultural life through digital means. So these are the digital channels that we might, might use, whether it's streaming on TV or your phone or the web or whatever. How we experience culture through digital. But we're also interested in the culture of digital. So those digital spaces, things like, you know, call it social media or gaming culture or whatever, those digital spaces and those digital communities, understanding how they operate as culture and how they might be understood in cultural ways. So culture through digital, the culture of digital, but we're also interested in culture by digital. So the fact that some of our cultural life, whether it's you know, those part of the art world that are digital art and net art, or those part of the filmic world are, are, you know, are digital films or films that are, you know, only exist in, you know, through digital channels and streaming and so on. Those aspects of our cultural life that are digital in nature. So we're interested in what digital has done to the, to the matrix, to the collage, to the, the tapestry that is, that is digital. And then there's the final one, because culture through digital, the culture of digital and culture by digital, we can understand those. But we're also interested in culture as digital. So this is us taking mindsets such as you know, thinking about the world as you know, in network terms or seeing the world you know, in, in data terms. And what happens when we look at culture and society but we take a, a media perspective, or we take a, a computing perspective, or we take a communications studies perspective on that. What do we notice that's different? What, what do those lenses allow us to see when we're trying to understand the human condition, but from the perspective of these, of these digital vantage points? So that's our, our kind of north, south, east and west of what we see as digital culture. Let's quickly drop in Professor Andrew Hugel here, who is great at explaining the issues around transdisciplinarity in academia, which we want to think about. Typical of this kind of thing is a desire for some kind of transdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. You find that because of the structures that exist in universities, there's this tendency to force you into monodisciplines. There's a whole load of jargon that saves time in, in research that kind of ring fences that discipline. The problem with this, of course, as we all know, is that the, pro the challenges that the world faces are far too complicated to be seen through the lens of just one discipline. You know, you, you need more than one discipline. But the problem is university structures tend not to enable that, mm. despite the fact that every research funding call now, every research council talks about interdisciplinarity. You know, a constant cry, interdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity. Uh, and then you look at what actually happens when you try to do something interdisciplinary and you run into all these challenges and mm. difficulties, you know, mm. that are linked to funding but are also linked to people's uh, knowledge, to their attitudes, uh, all sorts of things. So the, the kind of institute that I've founded and been involved in tends to exist to try and encourage 
you know, the breaking down of these barriers between uh, disciplines, the getting past the silo mentality, they call it. Our caveat is just because something's interdisciplinary doesn't mean it's good. And unfortunately, what is rewarded is not the kind of thing we do. It's the kind of thing that sticks within the monodisciplinary culture. Or at least that's how it appears Mm. if you're having a meeting with your line manager. Are there challenges as well as opportunities of something like this, which is a fairly cutting-edge idea of an organisation slash space being inside a mainstream kind of red brick university or is this the, just basically the right place for it <laughs> I, I think the official answer is i meant to say at this point is absolutely the right space yeah, yeah. but but anybody honestly would say okay number one setting up something new is hard you know at the moment you know, it's like we're a startup we started with you know ground zero a business case identifying the resource, identifying the space, building the staff, putting the KPIs together, identifying the, you know, the, the, the processes and systems that need to be in place, putting together our strategic priorities, onboarding, communications, branding, all of those things, you know, building a, a kind of the cadence and rhythm of how we're going to work, um, creating trust within the organisation, building a narrative, thinking what leadership looks like, nurturing all of those new individuals, all those things that anyone that's you know, put together a startup company or a startup organisation, it's, it's all of that. But I guess where we're lucky is, you know, rather than putting my mortgage on the line, actually I've got the air cover and the protective bubble and shield of, of the university that's saying, take your time to do this. You know, here's the resource to support you. And actually we've got your back. You know, the university leadership have been extraordinary in the support they've given to the institute so it is it is hard it is hard because you have to build something audacious and extraordinary and complex from scratch but I guess why doing it at Leicester at this time is special and why it resonates and why I'm getting so much support is we're in a reflective moment and I think we're all acutely aware of our responsibility now that this is our turn and what are we now building and handing on and passing on for the next century and so to build something new at this particular moment means that every conversation every decision every time we put another another you know brick in our in our wall of the institute um, I think we're very mindful of this act of creation and we're very aware of us doing something that mirrors this extraordinary act of, of, um, of community building and, and scholarship that took place a century later. So our centenary moment means that creating an institute now has a particular resonance and a particular import. And I think it means that nothing feels trivial, everything feels quite, quite kind of profound. As Ross says, it's an opportune moment to create something like this institute now. And that makes it a very interesting case study for us. You could describe it as a unique collision of circumstance. Our own lens similarly sits on a century of thinking about technology and culture. After all, what is a downloadable, streamable audio series a hundred years after the invention of radio, if it's not the language and expression of an older culture filtered through the transformative impact of digital technology? My name is Alberto Cosso, uh, and I am working at the University of Leicester as a um, lecturer in media and communication. And my role at uh, the Institute of Digital Culture is um, a fellow um, 
and I am currently um, uh, the first supervisor of a scholarship that uh, uh, will start in September 2023, uh, which is about art and blockchain. That's my formal thing. Yeah. I'm also a program director here at the University of Leicester of the MA in digital media and society. So um, the digital is around me, although it's, I'm not entirely sure if I went to the digital or the digital came to me. <laughs> it's not entirely clear. Okay. When we talk about digital culture, my proposal would be maybe we can call it culture. Uh, and I would say they are forever married, I think, mm. digital and culture. Mm -hmm. They are married forever. <laughs> If we keep talking about people, people have uh, orientations, have preferences, have issues, have uh, struggles, and their hopes and their, their styles to approach it. So what we try to do there, and that's the thing that I, uh, I like the most about the approach that the Institute has since the beginning, because this was you know, inspired by, the I think, the overall philosophy of the Institute is to be uh, purposeful and mm -hmm. being uh, out yeah. in the world. Um, and so I went out searching for a partner for the scholarship. And we found an amazing partner uh, called Creative United. Uh, they're based in the Somerset House in, uh, in London, and they do amazing uh, work. I've been to one of their uh, workshops and they put together, it was about um, making music production software accessible. Mm. Uh, and they put together all the meaningful people in the room. They put the, the developers, teachers, they, they've put musicians who use those tools. Uh, for you know, visually impaired people, for example. So that was really impactful, and and I love the approach of like fixing, trying to not fixing because it's difficult to fix in once, but you know, being mindful of trying to improve certain of society. You have to put people together. So uh, what we like to do in our um, for the PhD uh, candidate that we select is someone who have who has ideas and someone that we can supervise in terms of providing all our skills and transmit our knowledge and, you know, if and when needed, but also, um, you know, having one industry partner on mm -hmm. board, I think it's gonna allow this scholarship to be based on actual practice, actual needs. Because if you think about art and blockchain, if you think about artists and creatives, we think about all the problems there are in the art system and the creative system in the mm -hmm. UK, mm -hmm. not only in the UK, uh, you know, the gender issue and the ethnicity issues. Mm -hmm. It's amazingly white, mm -hmm. I think, in mm -hmm. the UK. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all, all the biases and infrastructures that the inequalities that are, that are there. So I think that um, we'd liked, we'd love that this scholarship could make a difference in terms of providing a new way to understand, to uh, visualize what are the, the problems that we don't know yet what they are. Yeah. Uh, it could be a yes. Let's say, let's assume art and blockchain and new forms of blockchain sustainability for the art sector remains and goes on, but it remains, in, it's grounded in practice, it's grounded in, in real life. And of course, putting together an analysis of what this technological structure offer us in terms of 
imaginations, I think, but also opportunities. I mean, the blockchain, let's not, let's not forget about it. There are many people who have found interesting ways to use that for funding their own ventures uh, and for, also in the case of museums, to uh, give a new possibility of linking museum objects to a wider to a wider ecosystem mm -hmm. of stakeholders or people. So there is a, a way uh, to open up to the people. So it, th there are many interesting uses. Um, so for me, like people and technology, yes, let's understand the, the, the interplay, the production of cultures about it. Um, and if I would say something that I would avoid and I try to avoid is this fetishism of the technology in itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, the technology in itself is not going to disrupt anything, I think. Yeah. I love the fact that this institute is um, uh, being thought organizationally from, 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 from the top. They managed to have these um, institutes exist in sort of autonomous space within the university in an area where uh, they have freedom more freedom than other structures uh, can have and i think the fact that they're new and they are free uh, a lot of trust and respect for the people who who lead them the way in which the people inside can be you know can be supported uh, in a very different way in doing what they want to do, right? Um, so I like, for example, the idea that once we're discussing with Ross um, about, you know, questioning the idea that sometimes we have that, for example, the academic, the lecturer, like I am, I have three main jobs, which is research, teaching, and admin. And maybe questioning the fact that, uh, you know, if I can do research, maybe I'm not the best person to write uh, a grant, or maybe if I can write a grant, maybe I'm not, I'm not the exact best person to actually do it. So, you know, making the assumption that, you know, breaking the assumption that we are or we should be all around, but, you know, yeah. um, giving to each one of us, recognizing our own peculiar abilities. There are academics, there are excellent at writing successful grant proposals and um, and there are academics who are not very good mm. there are great academics that can teach uh, in the most uh, inspiring way and there are people who are not that uh, brilliant I could say um, so it, it's a bit about finding breaking down mm. probably I, I mean if I could possibly see like this institute or these institutes like uh, breaking down assumptions and create a wave that propagates mm -hmm. through the university, mm. I think. My name is Isma Johal. Uh, I am the CEO and co-founder of an organisation called Threshold Studios that works all across the country, but also is proud to be the uh, founders and directors of Frequency Festival, International Festival of Digital Culture in Lincoln, which is a biennial festival. What is digital culture? Like, what is it? Evil question. <laughs> what does it mean to you? I think it's a holding phrase mm -hmm. to locate us. The big word is technology. It's how technology has now become such a core part of our everyday lives, which is the important bit. So digital culture, I think, is a holding phrase. Technology is the key word here and adoption of technology and also the inequity that occurs if you don't think through that properly 
is where I'm interested. Mm. So whether that's through digital literacy, whether that's through digital poverty, as creatives, we can get very excited about the ideas. And with technology, we can think it's this piece or it looks like this or we'll use this piece, you know, we'll use AI in this particular way or we will use a piece of hardware in a particular way. But we must, must, must always check in on ourselves around the importance of who is accessing and experiencing the work that we're creating. And if we're using technology, not the assumption that everybody will know how to access that experience. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, it's always been about how we engage communities and make their places relevant for them Mm -hmm. and how that's reflected. And I think that arts and culture can really play a pivotal role in that. So well-being, community cohesion, you know, more equity, building confidence in our communities to kind of engage in their spaces and places, I think is is a really exciting thing. So again, that's something else that I'm kind of, at the moment, that's one of the things that's really at the forefront of my mind. Mm. Arts and culture has a really pivotal role, I believe, in breaking down those silos and you know breaking down some of those divides in terms of inequality in terms of entrenchment marginalized communities um and if we can find a way to embrace technology as part of that then we are all moving forward together uh, in a positive way you know that's very aspirational for an arts organization to have a relationship with an institution is a very different thing to an arts organisation having a relationship with a researcher or a course or a discipline within a school or a college. That's huge. And that was really a learning curve for me mm-hmm. because for Threshold as an organisation 25 years ago when we were doing you know, projects on estates, you know, targeted estate work with pupil referral units and youth offending teams and whilst training up artists. And then we were in kind of regional policy meetings around kind of investment for the arts and culture right down to the county and, and hyper-local levels. It's the same thing, but in a different way having the opportunity to understand that you have to navigate the strategic Mm -hmm. with the delivery is I think where as an organization we might be working in a territory which is not so commonplace it's really hard but the reward is big because what we feel is as an organization then we can create the conduits for other organizations because we can create those pathways through. Mm-hmm. So with an institute, mm-hmm. um, and there is that difference. So for me, you know, that relationship with institute, um, depending on who you speak to in the sector, and some will have far more experience of working with academia and with either the institute or with a school or a college in a particular place, is financial. There is a perception that the arts are poor and the university's HEI is rich. The resource is not the money the resource is the people. Mm. And that can be a red herring in an early doors relationship, an embryonic relationship between an arts organisation and a researcher, for example, or a university or a college, right? Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is another thing that we have the opportunity to work on a bit more Mm. because that was another eye-opener for me. Mm. Well, it wasn't an eye-opener, 
it was just understanding. For me, always the resource was the people, but with colleagues, it, it was, oh, that's where the money is. And actually that's not where you start from. But the bit you start from is really super hard because the funding can come, you know, all of that can come, but it can take years. Mm. It's not just months. And as a sector, we're very fleet of foot. We're very agile. We have to move quick. We have to respond, partly to do with the way our economic model is and partly because of the nature of the way that we work. You know, maybe if you're in theatre, you might be planning 12 months ahead for most organisations. They might plan their three-year activity, but actually for a freelance artist, they might not know what they're doing in the next three months. Mm. So how do we make sure we don't lose out? And for me, again, that's where I think innovate. Where we could tap into some innovation there and we could really yeah. make a difference. Usma's point about the power of collaboration is an interesting one, but also a fraught one. If the arts sector is, by necessity, needing to be more agile than a university is able to be, then an important role for an institute like this one is to try to encompass the best of both, agility and the rigorous processes that academia demands. We will build on this next time on The Output, when we'll be exploring design and some of the different inclusive digital projects, and more broadly, the relationship between technology and accessibility in all its forms. You can't be people first without going where the people are, Mm -hmm. and that's technology, Mm -hmm. and that's being able to see yourself both in kind of a more abstract sense of this is something that is relatable, this is something that is accessible, and in a very specific sense of I as an individual am having this experience and is it meaningful to me? Is it something that I'm going to think about when I leave? Thank you for listening. You heard contributions from Steve Williams, Clarissa Wilson, Andrew Fletcher, Professor Ross Parry, Professor Andrew Hugill, Uzma Johal MBE and Dr Alberto Kosu. The Output is written and presented by Dr Sophie Frost and me, Chris Thorpe Tracy, who also edited it. Artwork is by Matt C. Stokes. The Output is produced for the Institute for Digital Culture at the University of Leicester.